If you would begin, though, uh, by opening your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, I hope you brought your Bibles today because that is the textbook, and we're going to have uh, a little bit of school today. You're going to see in a second you have a quiz coming that you might not have known about. Uh, we'll get to the quiz in a second. But first we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're looking at the importance and significance of the Bible. I always want to highlight and take every opportunity to encourage and impress upon your minds the value and the significance and the importance of the Word of God. And we're going to see this here in a few verses as we start in verse 16 and look at a, uh, a statement and an explanation by Peter who is describing the transfiguration, something that he would have witnessed many years earlier. In verse 16, the Bible says, Peter writes, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were, what's the next word? Eyewitnesses. How many senses do you have to receive information? Five, right? That's one of the five eyewitnesses. So keep that in mind. Just make a mental note. Peter says we were eyewitnesses of this incredible event of seeing Jesus transfigured into his glorified form as they were there on the Mount um, Peter, James, and John. So eyewitnesses, number one, verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a what? A voice. Is that, which sense is that? That's your hearing, right? A voice to him from the excellent glory. And now he's actually quoting God the Father. So these are powerful words. This is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we what? We heard. So there it is again. We heard it. We saw it. And he continues and says, when we were with him in the holy mount. Now especially notice from those, those statements, verse 19, we have also, in addition to that evidence, a what? A more sure word of prophecy, a more certain or definite foundation to base our belief and confidence on, a more sure word of prophecy. And he continues and says, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a what? A light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn. And then what happens when the day dawns? Something happens. The day star arises in your hearts. So I want you to notice what he's saying. The Bible is always above any sensory information or input that you could have in any other, any other way. Did you see that? The Bible is more of a strong foundation to build your belief and your life upon than seeing is believing, than hearing is believing. The word of God, he says, he's telling the, the, his hearers who weren't at the Mount of Transfiguration, you have the same evidence that I do from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And so that evidence that you have is even greater than the eyewitness and the earwitness testimony that I have when I was there. Now that's important, but it's not as important and as strong as the word of God, the sure, the sure word of prophecy. And so that's what, if we realized how certain and important the word of God is, how much more would we long to study its pages? And would we, would we be interested in wanting to go to Bible studies and, and learn and study the things that God has revealed to us that our hearts might burn within us and that our faith might grow stronger and stronger? Well, what is this day star? That ties in with what we're gonna look at. Go to Revelation now. We're going to get there and spend quite a bit of time there. Revelation chapter 22, let's go to the last chapter 
and find out what is this day star that is going to arise in our hearts. Revelation 22 and looking at verse 16, last chapter near the very last verses of the whole Bible and it's stated a little differently by John, this day star. Revelation 22 verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. And then he says, I am the root and the offspring of David. More on that in a minute. And he says, I am what? The bright and morning star. How many times can you think in the Bible that you know of is Jesus compared to the light of the world, the son of righteousness? What does it mean to have the day star arise in your hearts? It means to have the light of Jesus Christ and his truth be brought to, brought to your heart in such a way as it guides and convicts and leads you into the path that Jesus has set out before you, right? Proverbs chapter four, verse 18 says, the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. It, go, it grows brighter and brighter as the day star, the morning star, which is the herald of the morning. Of course, the morning, when it comes, it doesn't just stay morning all day. It grows until it becomes the brightness of the noonday the brightest part of the day, and that is the description of the experience of the person who follows the light of truth as it's revealed in, Jesus, in, in the word of God, which points to Jesus. It is so important, the word of God. Let me just read a statement here from volume six of the testimonies, page 393, speaking about the word of God as a whole. The word of the living God is not merely written, but spoken. The Bible is God's voice speaking to us, just as surely as though we could hear it with our ears, just as certainly and surely as if we could hear it with our own ears, the Bible is God's voice speaking to us personally. And then the next part really hits home. If we realize this, if we realized it, do you think things would be different in our lives? And, and I'm saying this uh, not to, re to rebuke you, but to rebuke myself. Would I be as excited about who's running for president in 2020 or would I want to have a Bible study? Would I be as excited about, you know, who's going to play for the Super Bowl or would I say, wait a second, what does the Bible say about Jesus? Would I be as interested in who's going to be on the next edition of Dancing with the Stars or would I say, I don't, I'm not interested in that. What does the Bible say about Jesus? That's what I want to know. And I think that would be the difference. If we realize this, the Bible is God speaking to us personally with what awe would we open God's word? And with what earnestness would we search its precepts? The reading and contemplation of the scriptures would be regarded as an audience with the infinite one. With that in mind, are you ready for the quiz? You actually have a quiz today. Um, I'm gonna put my old teacher hat back on. It's a short, simple, 10-part quiz on the book of Revelation. And you're, you're in good company. You have Doris here if you need help. If you need to ask someone for help, I'm just gonna ask you a question that I think someone might have about the book of Revelation, and I just want you to tell me what chapter could I find this information in? If I'm looking for information, where could I find it? As, as opposed to just saying, well, it's somewhere in there, and I'll just say this on the front end, there's only 22 chapters in Revelation, so any numbers higher than 22 would not be correct. So it's between one and 22, those are your choices. If I'm looking for information about some of the events the, the description of the millennium, what chapter would I want to look in to find information on that? All right, sounds like the mixed multitude with the murmuring and mumbling here. I think I heard the correct answer over here. Anyone over here? What chapter would I look in to find information about the millennium? 
Revelation chapter 20, right? Okay, chapter 20. I think I heard some correct answers out there. Question number two, where could I learn about the second coming of Jesus coming on a white horse riding with an army of horses coming with him? The second coming of Jesus, where could I find that in Revelation? What chapter? Chapter 19. Very good, you're doing very well so far. Now, if I'm looking for a description about the character of the 144,000, and 144,000, I'm, I'm very strongly convinced, are those people living when Jesus comes. And I don't know about you, but I think Jesus is coming soon, and the character description of the 144,000 is one that I think might be important to be aware of and understand and know about. Where could I find information about what these people are like from the Bible? All right, chapter 14. Good, you're doing well. Maybe we need to ask the question faster and, and not give you time to look around more. All right, if somebody were to come to you and say, I've heard about this battle that's to take place when Jesus comes called the Battle of Armageddon. Where could I read about the Battle of Armageddon and this great battle that's gonna take place when Jesus comes? All right, I, I heard it down here in the front. Revelation chapter 16, it's only mentioned, the, the, the word Armageddon is only mentioned once in the Bible, but the description of that battle takes place under chapter uh, 18 and 19 describes the battle, but the mentioning of the gathering together for that battle is in chapter 16. Well, question number five, where could I find out about the United States in Bible prophecy? Is the United States mentioned about, okay, that was a quick one, very good, Revelation chapter 13, very good. Where could I find a description of Jesus who is so connected to his church that he's depicted as walking in the middle of the churches? Revelation chapter one, yes, he is in the midst of the churches paying close attention to their condition and their needs. Well, where could I learn about a woman who rides on a scarlet-colored beast and is persecuting God's people? Revelation chapter 17. I'm hearing a lot of answers over here, so I'm gonna come over. We're gonna get closer together today, all right? You can, you can do it. You can do it. Uh, let's see. Next question, coming to a close. You're doing fairly well. Where could I read about the great disappointment in Revelation that happened in 1844 Revelation chapter 10, hearing the correct answers over here from Dr. Tryon and Doris Walter, hopefully some of the others of you are muttering some of the same correct answers. All right, uh, question nine, where could I learn about a war that took place in heaven before that war came to this earth in the great controversy? Well, there are a lot of different, chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, there was war in heaven before it came to this earth. Now, here's one that you might be most often likely to encounter. Where could I find out about the mark of the beast? And hearing about what this mark is and how it'll be set up and established. A lot of people, it's an intriguing thought, and so people want to know about it. So where would I direct them to go find information on that? Revelation chapter 13 as well. All right. Very, very good. I think you guys will get a, a, a B minus, maybe, collectively. Not too bad. Not too bad. Now, some of you might be tempted to say, that preacher is just obsessed with the book of Revelation. What is wrong with him? Now, I want to read a statement to you, short statement from volume eight of the Testimonies, page 302. And it says there, the solemn messages that have been given in their order in the Revelation are to occupy the first place in the minds of God's people. Now, I know you're all here today because you're God's people. All of you, right? You're here because you want to be God's people, and you decide and chosen, have given yourselves to, to be that. But it says the, the events and messages in the book of Revelation are to occupy the first place in the minds of God's people 
And then here's the follow-up sentence. Don't miss this. Nothing else is to be allowed to engross our attention. Nothing else. And so, therefore, when I read things like that, I realize even more how significant and important these events are that are to occupy the first place in the minds of God's people as it reveals Jesus, a revelation of who Jesus is and what is to shortly come to pass the things that God wants us to know because they are to shortly come to pass. So I hope this will be significant and interesting for you. I'm going to share with you things that I have learned recently. So let's go to Revelation chapter 22. If you're there, maybe uh, if you're already still there, Revelation chapter 22 and things that Pastor Hyman has learned. Now, I've only been a pastor for two and a half years, and I have not been to the seminary, and I still kind of consider myself an undercover layperson. And so I, I haven't had any, you know, when I became a pastor, no one suddenly magically sprinkled pixie dust on me and I suddenly knew everything. I had to study and study and study, as the Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God. That is the one, it's not for a grade or for a class or for a teacher. I wanna study to show myself approved unto God, 2 Timothy 2.15, so I can know the things that he wants me to know about. Well, things that I have learned that are encouraging and exciting to me, let's look at verse 13 together. Revelation 22, verse 13, simple verse, I've heard it before, but in studying it here recently, I came to a new understanding. And it says, I am what? Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, my apologies to some of the people that did come. We had around 60 or 70 that faithfully came about every week to our Revelation class. Some of this, most of this will probably sound familiar um, because I shared it when I learned it. But if you were not there, this will be, I hope, a blessing to you. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Simple statement. What, what, what depth of meaning could there be there? Well, it is an expression to describe the first and last letters, really, the way that it's expressed is to, to, it's, it's basically to encompass the whole alphabet. What Jesus is saying basically is, I am the alphabet. So why is that important? The alphabet, well, what you do with letters is you put them together to make words. Words are put together to make messages and the message of revelation is the word of God. But it starts with the letters at the fundamental level. And so Jesus is the source and the foundation of the whole word of God. He is the word of God. In fact, flip back a few chapters to Revelation 19 and look at verse 13. Look what it says there in just very compelling and powerful and simple, straightforward language. This is, of course, the second coming chapter. Jesus coming on a white horse and it describes him as clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And it says, and his name is called what? His name is the word of God. And so all those connections with the word of God, the letters that are put together to make the words, it is Jesus that is the foundation of those. He is the complete message, the source of a description and the, the message of God is founded in Jesus. He is the alpha and the omega. And so that's why that's significant when you see that. And that phrase shows up four times in Revelation. It's once in chapter one and once in chapter 22 and in 21 and, and maybe it's twice in chapter one. It's, it's, a couple, it's in four times. And so I thought that was interesting because it, it, it more speaks to who Jesus is as the message. He is the full message of God, amen? Jesus is that foundation, the message of God. All right, things I've learned number two. Now I did not share this with my Revelation class, so this will be new to them. Uh, go to Revelation chapter one. And let's look at verse five. Revelation chapter one and looking at verse five. 
right here in the first few verses of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. This is introductory, but it's significant. I had not seen this point on Revelation 1, verse 5 until recently. It says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the what? Faithful witness, number one. And the what? First begotten of the dead, number two. And the what? Prince of the kings of the earth, number three. Those three things or those three titles for Jesus are actually significant because each one of those titles or names for Jesus is demonstrated and outlined in, first of all, the message to the seven churches. Jesus is the faithful witness to his church. He bears a message faithfully from God because he is God as to what they need to know and the importance of of connection with him. He is the faithful witness, especially to the seventh church out of the seven, the church of Laodicea, which represents us today, the faithful and true witness. And so that title for Jesus is fulfilled in chapters two and three as Jesus is the faithful witness to the seven churches. Now, the second title for Jesus is that he is the firstborn or first begotten from the dead. If you read the seven seals, which are next in the sequence of sevens, there are many martyrs who died for their faith in Jesus. And you can imagine during the course of the long, long time of persecution, many of the martyrs might be wondering, are our lives given to Jesus for nothing? Is there really a hope of resurrection? But with the title of the first begotten from the dead, by the way, the word for first begotten is actually the Greek word for protokos. That's where we get our word for prototype. It simply means first in rank, first in importance. Jesus is the first in importance. He's not the first person to be resurrected from the dead. You can look back in the Old Testament and see several resurrections there. But all of their resurrections are hinging and dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus. Does that make sense? His is the first in rank or importance. And so as all those martyrs that gave their lives, you look at the fifth seal and the souls that were under the altar symbolically crying out, how long until you avenge our blood? Jesus demonstrates he has the power to resurrect them back to life again by the title that he fulfills in the seven seals, which are next in the sequence. I don't don't know, I'm I'm, I'm kind of giving you big general pictures, but he fulfills that in that the the ministry to the seven seals that's given there. Now, the third position or the third title is that he is prince of the kings of the earth. If you go to the, the seven trumpets, which are the judgments of God on those who have persecuted his people, go to uh, Revelation chapter 11, and let's take a look at verse 15. Revelation chapter 11, under the seventh trumpet, I want you to see what happens here. And remember the title in the very introductory, Revelation 1 verse 5, it says that he is the prince or the ruler of the kings of this earth. Look at the title that's given to Jesus at the seventh trumpet, the last of the trumpets that come as the judgments of God upon those who persecute his people. Revelation 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel of the seven trumpets sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying what? The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and what is he gonna do? And he shall reign forever and ever. That should sound familiar because that is in the hallelujah chorus which hallelujah means praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord when he takes that position as king of kings and lord of lords. That's another title of his in Revelation chapter 19. So what a picture there. In Revelation 1 verse 5, you see an outline of the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets, and the ministry that Jesus fulfills in all of those in that one verse. And so I thought that was interesting. I thought that was kind of interesting. All right, something else that I've learned This is, let's go to Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. 
Revelation, this is in the seals now. Revelation chapter five, verses five and six. Uh, Revelation chapter five with the scroll with seven seals. Let's pick it up in verse five. And one of the elders, John, saw that no one could open this book with seven seals. And John begins to cry and weep. And then one of the 24 elders, in verse five, one of the elders saith unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And then it notice in verse six, and I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a what? A lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. All right, so Jesus is described in verse five as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then they come right back around in verse six and he's described as a lamb as it had been slain. Revelation is a symbolic book. What does that mean? Uh, listen to this quote that I found uh, in Manuscript 100, uh, 1893. Very uh, powerful quote here. It says, The Savior was presented to John under the symbols of the lion of the tribe of Judah and a lamb as it had been slain. Those are two things. And notice this description or explanation. Here, the whole work of redemption was expressed. These symbols represent the union of omnipotent power and self-sacrificing love. The line of the tribe of Judah, which has omnipotent power to do whatever he pleases. And then at the same time, he is the lamb as it had been slain. Perfect self-sacrificing humility and love for us. And he is both of those. And there are two symbols that are employed to describe Jesus in both of these aspects of who he is. And so that's powerful to see that. As the Lion of Judah, Christ will defend his chosen ones and bring them off victorious because they accepted him as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. When you accept Jesus as the Lamb, the Lion will stand up and fight for you. And so that is just a, a powerful picture of Jesus. So Revelation, sometimes you know, people get confused and flustered because it seems like it's just beasts and, and horns and, and all kinds of strange things. But if you look closely and study carefully, I promise you, Jesus is just saturated in the book of Revelation. I mean, that's what it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, but he is everywhere and being described in so many ways that to just a casual surface read, you wouldn't pick up. You wouldn't see that unless you were reading very, very carefully. Something, uh, let's move on now. Something else that I have learned, this is, uh, I think I shared this in an email, but I'm gonna repeat it again because it's so important. Revelation 14, verse 12, the very end of the, three angels' messages here, Revelation 14 and verse 12. And we're just looking at things that I have learned recently. And I am excited. I hope they will inspire you to want to study more and study with me or anyone else that will listen. Revelation 14 verse 12, it concludes this three angels' messages and it says these famous words, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have what? The faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus. Now, I've heard that description, description there. Specifically, I want, to, I want to zero down on the faith of Jesus. What is the faith of Jesus? And I read this statement uh, not too long ago. I think I sent this out on an email as well, so you might have heard it if you get the uh, church emails. And it says this. This is from 12 Manuscript Release, page 193. The faith of Jesus, it is talked of but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? And then here's the description, Jesus becoming our sin bearer that he might become our sin pardoning savior. 
He was treated as we deserve to be treated. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. Now, don't miss this uh, last part here. This is, if you're, not, if you're taking notes, write this down. You've got to have it in your margin so you will not ever forget this key point. Faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. So I'm going to say that again. This is, and so this is what we, you and I need to check our faith levels because this is a description that's described as those who are standing faithful to God. They're keeping the commandments of God because they have the faith of Jesus. But it says faith in the ability of Jesus to save you amply, which means more than sufficient, more than, it's a word for super abundantly, not just barely saved, but saved and then some, excessively saved, the power to save amply, fully, and entirely, that is the faith of Jesus. And that's what we all have to have. And so I want to have that, don't you? Amen. I want to have that quality of faith that I trust Jesus so much that I have no doubt in my mind that he is going to save me if I just reach out and cry out to him. No question, no doubt at all. Not even the slightest, you know, these doubts that creep into our mind from time to time when we get away from the word of God and and our devotional life and and we're not spending the time that we should with God in, in Bible study and prayer that starts to creep in and, well, maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not saved. No, if I'm, if I'm connected to Jesus, we know Jesus so well that he has such a power to save us. He is mighty to save amply and fully and entirely. That is what it means to have the faith of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you this morning to check your faith levels and your confidence in Jesus and say, Lord, help me to have this kind of faith. You know, if you read Luke chapter 18, the disciples actually told Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. They asked Jesus to help them to believe more in him. And so that is the same kind of prayer I think we all should have because Jesus had said, when the son of man comes to this, comes to this earth, will he find faith on the earth? And faith is based on the word of God and the word of God is made up of letters and the foundation of those letters is the alpha and the omega, which is Jesus, 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 all the way through. That is so awesome. All right, something else that I have learned. Uh, let's see here. I'm checking my time. I'm going to divide my sermon up. I'm going to make it two parts here. I'm going to look at one or two more things and we'll come to a close. My second part, I'll do it some other time. So I have too many things, and I'm not even going to get to all the things that I've learned, so that's okay. Uh, let me skip to, I'm going to skip over that. Let's go to, what does the tree of life symbolize in the midst of the paradise of God? Uh, let's go to Revelation 22, and we'll look at maybe just two more, and then we'll close. Revelation 22, and we're asking the question, what does the tree of life symbolize in the middle of the paradise of God? And if you're looking at Revelation 22 and looking at verse 2, describing the new Jerusalem and the home for you and me that God has prepared for us, just these small glimpses we see in Revelation, it says, in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life has the power to give life, but we all know, surely, who is it that gave that tree that power to give life? That tree actually represents something, and if you study Revelation carefully, trees are often used to describe people. So what person is it that gives life? You know the answer, but notice how it's expressed here um, in Review and Herald, January 26, 1897. Christ is the source of our life, the source of immortality. He is the tree of life. 
He, Jesus, is the tree of life, and to all who come to him, he gives spiritual life. Everyone that comes may partake of this tree. And even more, notice this next statement following up on that. Um, in Review and Herald, May 4, 1897, the Bible and the Bible alone is to be the rule of our faith. It is a leaf from the tree of life. How so? When we read and, and study these, these pages, it has the power to show us and tell us about Jesus and eternal life. And so as we read and assimilate it into our lives, it is as if we are eating from the tree of life because it has the same effect, the same power to give spiritual life is in the word of God. And so that is exciting. We can eat from the tree of life right now today. In fact, we're doing it in, in the worship service. That is the most important thing is to eat from the tree of life to sustain us day by day. The Bible, Jesus, the tree of life. And then finally, all right, let's go to uh, verse one. Just write uh, Revelation 22, verse one. What does the river of life represent? What do you mean? It's just a river, right? It's just water. Revelation 22, verse one, it says, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the lamb. Do you notice where that water's coming from? It's coming from the foundation of the government of God from his throne. You sit on the throne, that's where the king sits. That's the foundation of the government of the universe. And it's coming from the throne, this water. What does that represent or symbolize very, very interesting. Uh, this was from letter 87, uh, 1894. And it says here, we need to keep ever before us the efficacy, that is the, the value and the effectiveness, the efficacy of the blood of Jesus. That life-cleansing, life-sustaining blood appropriated by living faith is our hope. We need to grow in appreciation of its inestimable estimable value for it speaks for us only as we by faith claim its virtue. And then it says, this is represented as the pardoning blood inseparably connected with the resurrection and life of our Redeemer, illustrated by the ever-flowing stream that proceeds from the throne of God, the water of the river of life. So the water of the river of life represents the sin-pardoning, sin-forgiving, life-cleansing, life-changing blood of Jesus that he has given to us to save us. In a, in, a, in a powerful symbol. Yes, it's water, but it has the, the, the representation and illustration of being the life of God. Blood represents life, Leviticus 17, 11. The life of the animal is in the blood. It symbolizes life, and that life comes from the foundation of the throne of God and is given freely for all of us. This never-ceasing river that comes from the throne of God, it represents the blood that God has given to us to save us, to clean us, and to prepare us for his return. Oh, Father, this is amazing love that our God would die for us and give his life and shed his blood for each one of us, that we might have the assurance and the faith that Jesus, our Savior, is able to save us amply, fully, and entirely. Lord, strengthen our faith. May we continue to eat from the tree of life as we study your word. Bless each one of my brothers and sisters here today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.